Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Ali Spittle, who is a developer, technical blogger, podcaster, and is currently the faculty lead at General Assembly. Ali Spittle, welcome. We are so delighted to have you join us on Maintainable. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits of well-maintained software? I think it's software that you can easily add new code to and onboard new programmers to. So instead of it just being the same couple of people that can maintain a piece of it, having it something that is easily extendable by other people as well, in addition, writing clean code, One of my biggest pet peeves is like really, really long functions and classes that are really hard to dive into. So my horror story from my first software engineering job was there was a thousand line Ruby method in their code base. So one method. And that was pretty much impossible to clean up in some ways because it was just such a giant. I think Ruby also makes it a little bit harder because of the indentation and the like end statements, they get lost sometimes too. So it was, it was pretty tough and very much difficult to maintain. So again, I think code that's maintainable is something that we can get other programmers onto in a relatively straightforward manner. And out of curiosity in that uh, example there with, uh, you mentioned indentation, say with Ruby, and I know that you're also a fan of Python. How do you, where it has like a forced indention, you know, approach to it, but do you find that that is more visually easier for you to kind of wrap your head around where things kind of end and start or? Yeah. I also think that indentation instead of the braces makes it so that writing shorter functions and methods is almost more important than in another programming language because things can get out of whack pretty easily if your methods start being really long and your functions start being really long. So I think that it helps enforce that. But I also know that I'm super biased towards Python because it's where I spent a large portion of my early career. And so I know a lot of people have issues with the forced indentation. But for me, I'm like, I'm going to be doing that anyways for my code. Why don't I get something back from that? But that's just my viewpoint there. And, you know, when you think, you mentioned uh, onboarding new people, are there some patterns that you've seen work well for bringing other people into a project that kind of, like, is that you're talking about just getting the application up and running in your local dev environment or a bit more than that? That, but then also them just being able to contribute code to that code base. And so something that is obviously important is documentation, whether that's external or internal to the um project with Python projects, I try to follow the Google style doc strings for documentation because they even have like test inputs and outputs for functions, which is pretty cool. And then following consistent code formatting and having that documented somewhere so that people know which code style to use when they're in that code base, um, having a linter is even better. And then on top of that, writing code in a straightforward, readable way so that people understand what's going on with the code. And if it's 
really, really abstract or something like that, it's going to be harder for somebody to add new code to because instead of having to look in one different file, you have to look in 20 different files to figure out what's going on and trace back what's going on in so many different directions. So I think that those things are important. I, I also have focused my career mostly on working with junior developers, both in a software engineering capacity and mentoring them, but also my job now is teaching at a boot camp, and so they're who I think of first when I think about onboarding new developers. With how do I make it so that my code base is something that those developers could jump onto and be able to contribute to? I think that's a really good point there. I, I'm thinking about how even my own team, when we bring in, we bring in interns almost every quarter, basically, and we work on a lot of different client code bases and. There are definitely some projects where like, well, that's going to be really difficult to get them up and running with. And that's maybe a detriment to that, those specific projects. But but we also know those projects that we have that, okay, okay, we think someone like in a half a day or a day could be able to start making some contributions to this code base with a brand new laptop. Like ideally, like we could be able to get to them in that state in a day or so. So they can actually start start contributing something to it. But that's not always the case. Like I think there's a lot of complexity and a lot of, you know, as apps or thinking about scenarios where you have code bases that might be split across multiple repositories or if you have microservices or versus like one main application and trying to figure out all that stuff and get a, a good mental model of the system there. I'm curious about, you know, as you're working, you know, you mentioned you're focusing primarily on helping junior developers to some capacity. How did you nav find your way into that kind of space there? That's a great question. So I started off just as a traditional software engineer, as I said. Well, before that, was I was like a TA at my college, but that was my first teaching experience. That being said, I was able to mentor a lot of junior devs and interns at that software engineering job. I was able to progress pretty fast career-wise there. And then from there, I started volunteering more with the community, and I taught a Django Girls workshop for the first time, and I was just blown away. I thought it was the coolest thing ever that, A, that there were these community events that I had no idea about until that time, and then B, that people who were brand new at coding were building Django apps within the course of a day, and seeing it click for them, seeing them want to learn more, seeing them get fired up about programming, it felt really magical to me. And so I, from there, did more and more community events, but also started guest lecturing at General Assembly, mostly for their data science program initially. And then from there, was offered a software engineering position. They're teaching their program for that. And I have taken breaks from it to go back into engineering role, but the the teaching really hooks me and seeing my students progress and them building their own careers. For me, I think about how many lines of code that I could write as a developer. And then I think about how many lines of code they collectively all write. And it's like I'm being multiplied. And I think that's really cool. That's a good way to look at that. I think there's a, you know, I talk to a lot of people that go through this transition of, you know, becoming a developer you know, becoming a senior developer at some point and maybe getting a little, and they haven't had a lot of opportunity to say to mentor. And then they struggle with the, uh, how do I teach people? Because I've never really built up that skill necessarily. And so, and I've always found that it's interesting when you can bring people in a little earlier in their career and have them help more junior people as well, ends up helping reinforcing that mentorship model earlier on. 
out of curiosity, I mean, I didn't go through like a CI or a CS degree or anything like on my high school dropout myself. And so I kind of learned to code over a number of years, long time ago. And what was your kind of path in getting into the software industry? Did you go through a bootcamp or did you go through a traditional CS degree? That's a great question. My path is also super untraditional. So I grew up in the middle of nowhere where I actually am recording this right now in a town of 3,000 people in rural New Hampshire. And I did not know what code was until college. I saw a computer science one-on-one class, and I thought that that was going to teach me how to do Microsoft Word and Excel. And I thought that those would be good career skills to have. And then day one, they had me writing Python code. And I was like, what the hell is this? Don't understand what even like code is on a fundamental level. But this is like kind of magical. I can type a thing into the computer and something else comes out. And so I over the course of that semester, fell in love with it, did pretty well. They offered me a teaching assistant position and I was like, okay, I'm going to like change my major to this and I'm going to really pursue this. Second semester was C++, data structures and algorithms. I would pull all-nighters all the time and still was struggling so hard in the class. I felt like I would never understand it. I thought that programming was not for me, that I was like too old to learn it, which is so funny looking back that I teach like 65 year olds how to code. And I thought I was too old at 19 to learn how to code. And I also was only one of the only women in the program and didn't see a lot of people like me there. And so I quit coding. I thought it just wasn't something that was actually for me. And so I went back to my original major, but then I accidentally became a software engineer. So I was doing like a data analysis, political internship. I realized that I could automate my whole job (laughs) because I was doing a lot of Excel work and I was like, oh, I can just like write macros to do everything for me. And then they figured out that I did that and transferred me into a software engineering position, which kind of changed my whole career trajectory. And from there, picked up more skills and more jobs in that field. So very, very untraditional. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great, great story there. I have some some similar overlap there myself too, in that I didn't really do CS courses really in college or anything because I didn't really attend. I mean, I attended college, but I didn't really attend college for a, like a year and a half. Got a, my, One of my first jobs I had outside of, you know, about 20 years ago was I was a desktop support person. I figured out how to automate a lot of things and I built like an intranet for the people so they could answer their own questions so I could stop replying to emails and helping people fix their computers. And I'm like, here's tutorials they put. And then the web department found out that I knew how to do that stuff. And they're like, why don't you come work with us? And I'm like, what, you're going to pay me to do this now? Like, (laughs) okay, cool. That's awesome. So, you know, as you reflect on your experience working on different code bases over the years, is there something you felt like you started, an opinion you had, pretty strong opinion about earlier on in your software development career that you maybe have since drastically changed your mind about? I think early on I was probably even more obsessive about like writing perfectly clean code and like super abstractions and this, you know, beautiful code, but code that's more difficult to A, write and B, add on to. And I think that I've definitely scaled back on that and become more realistic about that, especially with working with junior developers and seeing where they're at. So that's probably something that has changed a lot for me 
I also early on thought that front-end development would never be something that I could do. I started off writing just Python code for the most part at work and more on the data science side than on the like web development side. And I thought that moving pixels around was just the worst thing ever and that CSS was so tough. And I've definitely come around a little bit on that for sure. I still would say that I'm more on the logic heavy side of code. That's what I most enjoy doing, but I can write CSS now and it's not a nightmare for me anymore. So that's more of a personal thing than a strong held code opinion, but. I, I hear you there. You know, it's interesting. I think the, for a lot of people, I feel like in the web industry, they learn, like they got into web development, maybe started making websites or something and, you know, going through that HTML, CSS path, figuring out how to do that stuff. And that's, that's how I got into it to some degree. And now it's like the area of our code stack that I'm most ignorant about, I suppose, and most afraid to interact with. Because I'm like, oh, once I start doing this, I'm going to have to start thinking about other browsers, devices. You know, there's a lot of things that go into that. And I'm just like, that's, to me, that's like a really hard thing to keep in my head for whatever reason. And I know there's there's people out there that really enjoy that and have gotten to a really good groove with it. I'm also reminded that like, you know, 12, 15 years ago, we used to have front-end developers that were primarily doing HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And they were always, they were the grumpiest people on the team because they were dealing with older versions of IE and things like that at the time. I think we have a lot less of those problems nowadays, but I don't I don't know that because I'm actually not in that world that often. But I applaud people that are that are able to get into that area and feel pretty comfortable and competent because it's definitely changed a lot over the years in, in some good ways too. So Oh yeah. I mean I was going into web development in the era where you had to pretty much include bootstrap in order to do a responsive website. And so for everything to be now built into CSS is much nicer. <laughs> you know, as a person that's kind of, you know, well-known-ish in the online developer community, you know, how did you kind of find your path into having like kind of a following? I know that you've done a lot of technical writing and blogging. Like how did, how did you even get into that and just start off with? Yeah, that's a great question. So I when I started teaching, was like, I'm not writing new code anymore, and I'm kind of teaching the same things over and over again. I need to find some way to keep technically advancing myself, because I thought I was going to go back into software engineering in a little bit, but that was going to be my career trajectory. And so I started writing blog posts on the new things that I was learning. My initial challenge for myself was to learn a new technology each week, build an application with it, and then write a blog post on it, which was like completely unsustainable. But that's what I did for a while, actually. And based off of that, people started asking me to do like conference talks and things like that. So I did start to do a couple of speaking gigs. But at that point, you know, my first article had 32 readers, and I thought that was a ton of people. I was like, this is really, really great. Like, people are reading my stuff. I'm kind of shocked. I thought nobody whatsoever would read it. So 32 was huge. And even in that era of blogging, I would get like maybe a couple hundred to a couple thousand people reading each one of my blog posts. And I was like really excited about that. And it was leading to a lot of opportunities in itself. But then I got 
moved to working in Connecticut for summer for work and I did not know anybody there. And so I had a lot of extra time on my hands. And that's when I really went all in on blogging. I decided to tailor my work to beginner programmers at that point, because I was like, that's who I work with all day, every day. I have a pretty unique perspective on that and could probably speak pretty well to that audience. And it kind of blew up overnight. So at that point, I had just hit a thousand Twitter followers. I had like maybe a couple thousand reads total on my blog posts. I'd done a couple conference talks, but you know, it was a hobby at that point, really. And then it really kind of took off and it got to the front page of Reddit, got to the top of Hacker News a couple times, all within that first month. And so the first month of launching that blog for new programmers, I had like 250,000 reads, which is absurd. And then from there, it's kind of grown and transitioned and moved around. And I've tried different things and different forms of content, podcasting, video content, like just trying things out and trying to not put a huge amount of pressure on myself because I have decided at least for now to keep it as a side thing, even though it is something that could be a career for me, but I love working with students so much and working with a close-knit team that I've decided to keep my day job, even though the content could kind of be that if I wanted it to be. Right. You know, I know a lot of developers that are admittedly, I'm trying to think of a better word, but nervous about writing and blogging. Uh, Maybe they don't feel like they have anything new to contribute to the community or why would anyone want to hear what I have to say about this? What advice could you offer them on kind of like getting over that little hurdle? Yeah. First off, write for yourself. Don't write for anybody else. Because even if somebody else isn't reading it, teaching something is one of the best ways to learn yourself. And so it will reinforce the concepts. You will have to go dive in deep to really understand things and understand the whys instead of just the whats. And so it'll help you even if it helps nobody else. That being said, everybody learns in a different way. And so having different blog posts that cover the same content is still valuable. My best example of this is that I wrote a React tutorial way after a bunch of other people had already written React tutorials and just very beginner level, like what is React? And it's my most read blog post of all time. And it's not unique by any means. Like the tutorial itself is unique. The content is unique. The way of explaining things is unique, but it's a done topic that still can help somebody even if it's been done before. I think that's a good point. I know I was thinking about, I have a a mid-level developer, but uh, I think it was about a year ago we were tasked them with working on a a blog article for something. And I think they have been drafting something for like a week or two, working with our person that does some copy editing for us. And then they saw another post out there on the internet, like, oh, someone already kind of touched on this. So maybe there's no point in doing this now. And it, it was an interesting conversation to be like, no, 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 you have a different, like, you have a different angle on this. There's, it's not like people aren't just reading the blog post just to copy and paste some commands. And then, you know, and then there's, there's, it's like the same, there's a reason why there's thousands of the same type of recipe for making cookies, but yeah, everybody somehow adapts to some different one. It's like, I don't feel like there's like, why are there so many baking books? There's different perspectives and different. So I think that's, that's, that's that's some good advice there. Thinking about, you mentioned, touched on something about this keeping this as like a hobby for the time being. And I know that we're recording this right now in mid-June of 2020. I'm assuming for the most part, you've been probably in quarantine for the last three months or so. How has this 
period of time impacted you in terms of managing work type activities and these hobby tech related projects that you're doing? Yeah. So this has been a chaotic year for me. So at the beginning of last year, I started working remote and decided to do the digital nomad thing for a while. So I was moving around to different cities. And then at the beginning of this year, I took a promotion at work to move to New York City. Two and a half days into that new job in New York City, we got shut down for the coronavirus. <laughs> so I was transitioning. We were transitioning everybody to working remote and teaching teachers how to teach remote and moving our students to remote. So huge adventure there that two and a half days into that, we moved to remote. But I had just moved to New York City a couple of weeks before, so didn't know too many people in the first place. And then being locked in a New York City apartment with a mouse problem and a little tiny studio, definitely an adventure. And I then I got really lucky and had the coronavirus early on in the quarantine as well, which honestly... I'm not an outlier there. Like 25% of New York City's had it, I think, at this point. Some statistic like that. And 11% of the city had it when I had it. I read on a news article yesterday. So I was definitely not an outlier by any means. But definitely a, a challenge to be moving to a new city, not really knowing anybody, having this virus that's all over the news and definitely like overhyped a little bit. To some, Well, not overhyped for everybody by any means. But for me, it was like pretty much a long-lasting cold that really affected my lungs. So definitely more scary than it actually was um, for me. So it's it's tough time. It's a tough time to be productive. It's a tough time to motivate yourself. It's a tough time to keep on top of everything and maintain balance too is the other thing because I think some people are like, locked in an apartment and they're like, okay, I can work all the time now and I'm remote and all my stuff is here. So don't ever have to stop. And that's not how it works. I think that balance is one of the most important pieces to productivity. And so making time still to do things that are unwork related, whether that's reading, whether that's playing games, whether that's just doing like virtual happy hours with friends all the time, I think still balancing that out, even while during this time is really important, but I have been able to still be putting out some content. And right now I'm doing a lot of collaborations with different companies and um, trying to figure out that next step of what I do, I guess. And so it's definitely been an interesting time for sure, but you got to take it as it comes, I guess, right? There's nothing that we can really do about it. That's true. You know, I'm actually at my office right now because I sneak in about one day a week to do recordings for this. Otherwise, I've been at home myself. And I also, I had the symptoms. I had a really bad, like one of the worst flu-like things I had ever had, but never felt bad enough to need to go to the hospital or to get checked, go to a doctor. And there wasn't any testing at at that point anyways that I could really take. So I don't know if I had it or not, but I have a pretty strong suspicion that I did because it was pretty horrible, like lung problem for a good number of days at least. And so, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's a wild time. Now they're asking everybody who went to the protests to get tested. And I'm like, when I had this, nobody could get tested. Like even people with all the symptoms. So I'm glad that they've made them more available. That's good. 
You know, while I was preparing for this, one of my employees mentioned that she really appreciated your coding puzzles that you, I think you used to do those quite a bit on Twitter and then maybe move those to dev.2. She was curious, she asked me to, you know, to ask you if, kind of how did you go about crafting those puzzles and how did you kind of handle that, you know, when you're with your continued education, was that part of your own learning experience or how did that come about? Oh, it's so nice. I should really get back to doing those at some point. So... When I was starting writing content, again, I was really trying to make myself stay on top of programming despite being primarily a teacher. And so every day on social media, I would solve a code puzzle. I would do the easier ones on Mondays. So they would be like level eight Q on Code Wars, which is usually writing like a for loop or something that's really introductory to programming. And then by Friday, I would do a much more challenging one. So something like a Google Code Jam problem or something along those lines. And I played around with different content types for this. When I was working for dev, I tried to put them on the dev platform, but they worked best on Twitter. That being said, just with everything, it's a lot of work. And so I haven't had as much time, but I should really get back into that because that's so much fun and to keep challenging myself to do different programming stuff. It, it's a good thing to do. So I should get back into that. We'll be back with our interview with Allie in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone who I should be interviewing with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Ali Spittle. You know, you were mentioning earlier talking about finding balance with work and life and everything that's going around and, you know, whether it's regardless of this, the last three months or not, I'm sure these are things that you've struggled and like we all do to some degree at, at times with kind of balancing. You know, one of the things that I've personally struggled with over the years is, you know, I might be working on a project for a while that I'm in that's community related. And then if I stop doing it and then it kind of gets to this weird period of being like, oh, I haven't done it in a while. How do I pick it up again? I, should, I miss doing it, but, but I found myself focused elsewhere. And so there's like a weird level of guilt. Do you go through that type of emotional process? Do you feel like the community expects it of you or do you find pretty good level of peace with it being like, I'm not, Oh, I don't owe anyone anything necessarily. It's just, but you know, I'm just thinking through some of my own emotional baggage that I have when it comes to stuff like that. Oh no, for sure. There's definitely a guilt with it. And there's definitely this feeling of obligation of I have to put out X amount of content and I need to do this and that and need to grow everything and all that. And it's a lot of pressure and I think it builds on itself. Like you get offered more and more opportunities as your content grows. And so then it kind of snowballs and you keep getting asked to do more and more and more and more and more. And it's a tough thing to balance for sure. So things that I do to help out with that is tracking my time spent on things so that I know actually, okay, this takes me X amount of hours a week. And so yes, this is worth that amount of time or this takes 
way more time than the payoff is for this. Like only I'm spending six hours a week of the, on this, but only 10 people are benefiting and they're just barely benefiting. Like I should really probably cut this from my schedule. So for me, prioritizing is huge, especially as things have gotten crazier and crazier over time. I think just the ability to start saying no to and that I don't really owe anybody anything unless there is some sort of contract in place. Like most of my content is out there for free. I've never made a penny off of most of it. And so I'm doing that on my own time and taking time away from the other things that I could be doing in my life. And so having to think about that and really being like, this is like a gift to the community, not something that I owe them, I guess. And it's really awesome to be able to be a part of that and to be able to contribute to the community that I've gotten so much from myself, but also knowing that whatever I do is bonus, it's not required. I hear you there. It's like, it's one of the reasons why like I have one of my open source projects on my Z shell. And that's been something that's people like, and they, they kind of, there's a weird guilt for me when I'm like, it's not one of my top five projects and it's never going to be, it's like never going to be the thing that I prioritize over running a business, my own sanity, playing music, things like that. And so it took me a while to kind of get over that guilt there at one point. And it's also been one of the reasons why I never really wanted to take any contributions because then I felt like, oh, then I'm going to owe people something, you know, you know? And so, yeah, maybe there's also leaving an opportunity on the table there of figuring out how to like financially benefit from contributing to the world as well. So I think it's an interesting path and I'm kind of curious to kind of watch you navigate that in the coming years. Cause I know that's, there's probably a lot of op- opportunities available to you at this point. So, you know, when you're thinking about finding ideas to write or talk about? Do you have kind of a process that you've refined over the years? So yes, something that I'm really passionate about is always writing things down because if I have an idea for something and if I don't write it down, then I'm never going to remember it again in a couple days when I'm actually having the time to write or make content or whatever. So I have lists everywhere on my computer. I keep them on Google Keep, but I keep like a notepad by my bed to write stuff down if I think of anything there. Um, Have something everywhere so that if I have some idea, it's immediately on paper, even on my phone, having the notes app or whatever. So having all these topics written down and then I prioritize them by which ones I think will help people the most and just things that I want to write about too, because I'm ultimately spending my time on these things. So if it's something that interests me and that I think that I would get something from writing from, then I'd much rather write about that than something that bores me, but other people are interested in. So that's a little bit of how I prioritize content, but I also try to think about my audience and I try to reduce my audience down to one person at a time. Like who specifically is the one perfect person to read this? Who would it benefit the most? And then I write to that person. And usually that does reach a much bigger audience and it does help the other people. But having that like ideal person in mind, I think is really helpful. And it really used to be the former me. Like what would beginner coder Allie really benefit from? And over time that's evolved a little bit to some other people as well. But having some person in mind that you're writing for, I think really does help. I think that's some some sage advice there. I think about how 
you know, when you're writing content, you know, you obviously want to have like a target audience of some sort, not to try to blanket it out to everybody, because then it's hard for people to maybe know if it's for them, potentially, you know? And so it's okay to write things that other people are like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. That's okay. Or I already know this as well. So I think, you know, well, I'm curious also if you, you know, may not have like a hard statistic to work off of, but what, what do you think of like when you're working on writing projects, what percentage of those topics or things you already know about or things you're actually curious to learn about and then want to also then write about it as part of your learning process? That's a really good question. Early on, it was all stuff that I did not know about. So things that I was challenging myself to learn for the blog posts. I think that those blog posts were incredibly helpful for me. And at that point in my career, that's what was important. Um, now I write more about stuff that I do know about and have experience in. And so that tends to benefit other people more because it's something that I have more experience in. And generally I'm able to put that more in beginner friendly language and to really write content that I'm proud of, I think. Whereas something that I'm more new to can be a little bit more difficult. That being said, I think that intermediate people at topics are some of the best to teach them because they are new enough to that topic that they still remember their stumbling points and the things that were difficult for them. But then they know enough to write something that is digestible by somebody else. So now I write mostly things that I've been using for at least a little bit of time. Um, not that I'm brand new to and learning that week in order to write a blog post on it, which is what I started with. But it's definitely always an interesting balance of who I'm writing for, what topics I'm writing about, and all that, too. And now I'm writing more for companies, too. I'm doing kind of developer advocacy as a service for some companies. And so that involves me learning more about their individual products in order to teach them. And so that's definitely an interesting learning curve as well. Yeah, I bet. Have you done much work with companies where you're helping them explain their own tool sets them to like an internal staff type of new developers and things like that or not to an internal staff usually it's um software that they're trying to get out to a larger community and teaching that community how to use that technology so usually more external than internal but internal would be cool too so things like maybe like interacting with apis or to that type of degree yeah yeah so one big collaboration i've been working on recently is hasura which is this incredible GraphQL service. And you can like click things on their interface and then have this fully deployed GraphQL API that you can immediately integrate into your applications. It's like the coolest thing ever. And so I've been doing like workshops on that and teaching people how to use it. And it's I only do things that I'm incredibly, incredibly passionate about, which this one, I just saw the demo and was like, oh my goodness, like, hold back to the bench. This is the wildest thing that I've ever seen, especially as somebody who started writing GraphQL code, like right when GraphQL came out, and it was unexperienced, to say the least. So that's a little bit of, like, what I tend to do for companies. Nice. If companies were, you know, if anyone's listening and they're interested in that type of contracting you for that type of thing, what's a good way for them to find out more information about that or get in touch with you? My email is hello at welearncode.com. That's the best way to contact me about stuff or my Twitter DMs. That's another way to get at me. I'm Ace Fiddle on there. Nice. You know, I know, also know that you're 
you began, you guys kind of jumped into the podcasting arena last year. For those who haven't listened to Ladybug yet and, and or haven't subscribed, can you kind of give us a quick high level pitch of what that is and who maybe the ideal audience is? Yeah, for sure. So Ladybug is a really fun podcast that I run with Emma Bastian and Kelly Vaughn. And we have a ton of fun talking about different technical topics of all different varieties. Um, we have a lot of episodes that are teaching technical topics, mostly on the web side, because that's the world that most of us come from. But then we also do interview shows where we talk to people who have different expertise than us. And we also talk a little bit about entrepreneurship and content creation and brand building and all those things too. So it's a nice mix of career skills, but technical skills. And um, I would say that our technical topics are usually more beginner to intermediate tailored, and then our more career-focused episodes could appeal to anyone at any point in their career. Nice. I'll definitely include links to that in the uh, the show notes. I wanted to talk a little bit more about content creation real quick before we kind of wrap this up. And I'm thinking about, for, for those listening right now who have yet to, say, produce a blog post or write something technical in a while, or maybe they're thinking about it for the first time, what advice could you give them today on like maybe how they could start brainstorming or coming up with a way to approach that? Yeah, I would do something that's a quick win. So something that doesn't take a lot of time, doesn't take a lot of investment or anything like that. So write up a quick blog post and don't build a blog site for yourself. Use something like Dev2 or Medium to see if it's something that you enjoy and just see what the response is. Doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't have to be anything that's super, super unique or cutting edge. Just something that you're passionate about, some thought that you have. I, again, work at a boot camp, so I have students write about their projects or something that they learned over the unit that they're working through. So just a quick blurb on something and put it out there. I'm really big on something with a short on-ramp to start because if you have to build the whole entire blog site yourself and then pay for hosting and write this really, really huge blog post, that's like 40 hours of work instead of two hours of work. And so if you do two hours of work, get some readers, get some nice comments, or even just feel proud of yourself for putting something out there that you can put on your portfolio, that's going to feel a lot better than having to put all this work in. Like you might not get through all that initial work. So do something quick and easy to start out with. You know, you mentioned like portfolios and I think about when I'm interviewing people or doing re like reviewing candidates that apply for to work at my company, I do notice if they blog or not. And it's I don't always rank that up as like the most important thing for them to be, be doing because I know not everybody has the time or capacity or the, the desire to maybe write in a public forum like that. But it, it does, it is, it is noticed, you know, and I think I'm like, Ooh, that, that would be, might be a nice value add as well. Cause as a company, we're trying to produce different content and we're also thinking about how we're writing and explaining things for our clients and seeing people's writing skills outside of a cover letter can be quite helpful when it comes to, you know, given that you work at a general assembly and that's a boot camp, right? Yep. What do, you, what do you believe are some shortcomings in, a, say, a typical CS or bootcamp bootcamp curriculum? That's a really good question. So for CS, for me, it felt like a lot of the programming was built for somebody who had coding experience prior to 
the CS program, which isn't achievable for a lot of students. I think that it is probably more so now than when I went through college, but even still a lot of people from rural environments or different school systems aren't going to have access to computer science before college. And so making sure that it's achievable for everybody. For boot camps, I think the hard part is that it's hyper, hyper accelerated and it's a huge amount of work in a short amount of time. And it kind of has to be in order to be the amount of time that it is and to be the cost level that they are as well. They have to be short. And I think that that is something that's difficult to pile all this information into that short amount of time and have to work so much outside of class and put so much in. It's like a short sprint, but it's a huge amount of work, which I think is difficult. I do really stand by the teaching model at at least General Assembly, where we have mostly hands-on practical knowledge. So people are building things the whole entire time, and we have a lot of educational models for that of I do, we do, you do which is I talk about something for a little bit and then we all write the code together and then they do it independently. And that builds off of itself over and over and over again within a class. And then they usually have a longer period to practice again that afternoon. And then at the end of the week, they have a project. And so it all builds off of itself, which I really, really stand by for the um, bootcamp curriculum. And CS, I think, normally focuses less on the super practical skills and more on the abstract, which I think is really interesting in a lot of ways because a lot of that is important and it does play in sometimes, but it's not necessarily super tangible or hands-on. It's not like when I was in CS, I was like, why would I ever use a linked list and array as a thing? Like, why would you ever put yourself through this? And now I understand it like years into my career, but at that point it was way too abstract for me. And so... The boot camps are going to focus more on the arrays rather than the length list, for better or for worse. So I think that there's a place for all these different education models within the industry. I think that there are people who want to like pit them against each other, but I'm of the strong belief that there's a different answer for everybody. I think self-teaching is valid. I think that computer science is valid. I think that boot camps are valid. And I think that there are a place for people from all these different backgrounds within the industry. As uh, people go through that, that sort of model there is it a safe assumption that a lot of the work there is being done on like building new things. So you're kind of building the the foundational stuff, but I also know that there's that immediate transition that most people probably that early on in their career are not going to work on a brand new app for their first job, you know? And so it's like, there's no blank canvas. It's like, okay, now I got a job at a company and there's years of code into the system and like, Oh boy, here we go. Okay, so there are a couple different things that I try to do to address that. First off is just telling them that like you're not going to be building new applications every day. That's not how this actually works in the in the wild. Another thing that I do is debugging exercises. So I will build out a full application and then add a bunch of bugs to it, and that's their homework for the night is de- fixing all my bugs, which it's not a perfect mirror of the real world, but it's probably more similar than building a real app where you're working on somebody else's code and somebody else's bugs that they created. In addition, one really fun one that I've been doing more recently is I will have my students 
build a half of a project and then do like trading spaces on them so that they all flip to somebody else's project. And then they have to keep working on that person's project and extending it. So none of these things perfectly mirror the real world. I've also had cohorts where I've encouraged students really heavily to work on open source and make pull requests to libraries. But a lot of that can be really difficult for them to at this point in their careers. Um, a lot of open source libraries are pretty complex, but those are just a couple of fun exercises that I do that hopefully help them a little bit with working with somebody else's code and not having something that's brand new to them. As far as legacy code goes, that's a little bit older and not the latest versions. That's something that we do address in some of our programs as well. And it depends a lot on the market too. So in New York City and DC, we focused on different technologies, but then our remote program, it's usually a lot of people from kind of the middle of the country represented in those programs. And so we teach different tech for those as well. So there they get like Angular JS and PHP for some of the students. And so that's going to look very different than New York City, where we teach Ruby on Rails and DC, where we teach Django instead. So that's something that we try to do as well as think about what technologies are going to be used in which places. That's great. I like the the swapping idea. I know when we bring interns in, they usually come in for a couple of months and we've set up some a, some aspects of to what the type of work that we have them work. You know, they're always going to work on existing apps because that's all pretty much we do here. But we also give them tasks we know that they're not going to finish before they before the internship wraps up. We don't like explicitly bring that up as like a major but we want them to try to do their best to try to get something done, but there's also the uh, okay, this this feature is incomplete. But you're going to have to come out, wrap up the work you're doing to make it easy so for someone else to pick it up and continue working on. Someone else, you know, it could be the next the next interns that come in, maybe need to pick up and run with what you're doing. And I feel like that's an important skill set also is knowing how to like bring some, to wrap up something that's not finished, you know, and that's a, can be a bit of a challenge too. And, or take over something that's not quite prepared for them either. Cause those are the, the realities that we're jumping into a lot as software developers. For sure. For sure. It's one of my favorite exercises to do with them. It's like a unique challenge and they tend to really like it too. Even though I, when I started doing it, I was like, this is really mean. I feel like I'm like bullying them by making them do this. But then the feedback was super positive. So I'm glad about that. That's great. So just a few quick final questions for you. One, what non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? Atomic Habits. I really love that from a productivity standpoint. Um, the idea of instead of having big goals, working on small repeated patterns to get you to where you want to be and living to those habits. So that that is one of my favorite books and completely changed my life personally. I think that's actually been one of the most popular book suggestions over the last few months from different guests that I've spoken with. So it's on my uh, wish list. I need to just add that to my Kindle and schedule time for that. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? I know you mentioned uh, your consulting site. Do you have some other places people can also find you? Yeah. So my blog is welearncode.com. That's probably the best place to see my writing. If you want to see all of my content, I usually put it all out on Twitter where I'm A-spittle. A-S-P-I-T-T-E-L. Well, excellent. I'll definitely include some links to that in the in the show notes. It's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Allie. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with the community. Thank you so much for having me.
maintain a oh, 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 oh.